Welcome to the Encrypted Economy, where we look at the business of regulation and security for all things encrypted, digital assets, blockchain technology, privacy, and smart contracts. Hope you'll join us while we explore these forces that are shaping the economy. Hi. This is Eric Hess with The Encrypted Economy. For this last episode of 2020, I just wanted to do a wrap up of what we've done to date and some of the themes that we're gonna be following going forward on The Encrypted Economy. So to date, we've done about seven episodes, not including my own. One was Custody Investment Advisor with Joel Revel of Two Oceans Trust. I don't know if you remember, but Two Ocean Trust, after I did my interview with Joel Revel, basically the SEC came out and said that they were opening up comment with regard specifically to the no action letter that Two Ocean Trust got for acting as a custodian, as an investment advisor for digital assets. And it was obviously news breaking. It was great to be a part of that story. Great to meet Joel. Following that, we had an, an episode with David Harris about privacy and consumer privacy regulation, some of the advancements there. They have a great technology over at Manitou, basically streamlining the process for consumers to get access to all matter of information related to their privacy. Certainly, we're moving into an era of greater privacy regulation, which is also a theme that we want to continue to pursue on the show. We next did a episode with Travis Schwab of... Eventus Systems also broke a little bit of news there, learning that they had critical mass or was fast approaching critical mass in the marketplace for digital assets. This is exciting because one of the major impediments to Bitcoin ETFs was that the SEC is concerned about market manipulation. And so if you have a consolidated view of the majority of the market, it certainly cuts down that risk. So it was exciting to be part of that a story developing. Following that, we delved into data science with Brett Hemingway Falk over at the University of Pennsylvania, who talked about secure multi-party computation and some of the work that he's done there. It's a fascinating episode to learn about what is going on in the field of data science and how encryption is advancing to a certain point where we can now do encryption in processing. And we'll talk more about that. Then we followed up with Matt Walsh, co-founder of Castle Island Ventures. This is a venture capital firm. Matt and Nick are over there and basically getting in on some of the most intriguing plays in this space right now, digital assets. And it's exciting to see what they're doing. And it's interesting to follow their companies, quite honestly. They're right on the cutting edge. Also, before I forget, we also did an episode with Felix Shipkovich of Shipkovich Law. Felix, I've known Felix for many years. He's an expert at money services businesses, which is very significant when we're talking about businesses that are looking to do trading or other manner of things related to virtual currencies and the whole regime for having to register as a money services business in the United States. Basically, you have to apply state by state and it's very complex. Felix knows about it and he shared with us how complex it was. And we also talked about CFTC regulation as well. In the first episode of the year, we hope to be delving into privacy once again with one of the leaders in privacy regulation and advocacy in Europe. I think it's going to be a very interesting episode. 
and I hope to follow on with more like that. So the goal with the encrypted economy to date is to create a body of work for those who are either part of this continually evolving encrypted economy or who want to learn more about it. Either way, we're there for you, and I'm, I'm very interested to hear feedback, and uh, it's been great. Some of the comments and engagement that I've gotten today, keep it up. Let me know how I can improve the show, and I'll, I'll work on it. But we've got 2021. We have a, a number of exciting guests already committed, and it's just going to keep rolling. So what themes are going to continue to play out with the encrypted economy in 2021? At a high level, security and privacy are top of mind, obviously, with the Solar Winds hack. That raises a ton of issues. Privacy is integrally related to it and particularly how it impacts people and consumers and what's happening to their data as all these hacks are happening. It's an evolving world that we're living in there. Data science will continue to be a theme. We'll continue to explore homomorphic encryption, secure multi-party computation, basically technologies that enable secure processing, encrypted processing of information, because this is a field that opens up all manner of new businesses that could never even exist before. It is a brave new world in, in that respect. Digital assets, of course, will continue to be a major theme, particularly with everything that's going on there. We want to continue to focus on the advancement of those technologies and the application of those technologies. There's so much that talks about investment in Bitcoin and Bitcoin as a store of value, but it's the application of those technologies that is going to be intriguing as they take shape. Regulation, obviously, huge topic when we talk about digital assets. I think we're going to continue to see a iron fist velvet glove approach, meaning endeavoring to reconcile, to bring these types of assets into the institutional space, while also being very harsh on actors who are acting improperly. The big themes here are obviously anti-money laundering, what happens out of FinCEN and the Financial Action Task Force, as well as the custodian rules, which the SEC and CFTC and other organizations are grappling with. Who has liability when you have a coin that is basically has no governance or has a distributed governance model and the broad reach of the U.S. regulators as they struggle to manage this worldwide phenomenon. In the digital asset space, we're also going to be closely following the Coinbase IPO, not just because it's an IPO, but because of the disclosures, what we're going to learn from it and how those shares are actually going to settle. Are they going to be traditional or not? Central banks and virtual currencies, hard to ignore the impact of that in the encrypted economy. There's a tug of war going on. There's an explosion of the balance sheet. We're going to touch a little bit on this in this episode, but it is a rabbit hole. And then another theme is going to be X, the story that I'm missing, whether it's supply side blockchain technologies, logistics, what's less sexy, but where is this technology finding root and where's it going to play out? What are we missing? There's a lot of noise out there, obviously, about Bitcoin and, and Ethereum and, and Litecoin and these tradable coins and DeFi. But where is the rubber hitting the road? And that's something that we also want to really explore going forward in the encrypted economy. Now, to build a little bit on these themes in security privacy, I've written extensively about cybersecurity. And one thing we're going to be unpacking as a country is the full ramifications of solar winds and not just what we know about what happened with solar winds, but what else has happened. It doesn't only touch big enterprises, it impacts people whose information is being collected and monetized by big companies. And let's face it, the government. 
many aren't even aware, shifting to privacy, that this year the EU invalidated the privacy shield arrangement that it had with the U.S. Basically, the U.S. was deemed not to have adequate privacy controls. And so now organizations have to manage it through contracts and a sort of a maybe a slightly more cumbersome process. And it has real impacts on what we do with Europe. This is something we'll touch on next week. Uh, this month, California passed the Consumer Privacy Rights Act, which many may not even know, created its own data protection agency. They have an agency for data privacy, much like EU countries have their own agencies for data privacy. This is something that's an interesting development. It's going to be interesting to see what other states do, but particularly in light of what's happening in cybersecurity, is a federal privacy law coming? Not in 2021, probably, because we haven't heard of it yet and it's going to take a while, but it is in fact going to come. It's going to have to come because people's rights are going to be impacted. What's interesting is the U.S. Treasury Department was hacked, and then at the same time it was being hacked, like just as all these disclosures were coming out, it was driving to get even more personal identifying information on digital asset transactions in a what many are calling a midnight ruling. Now, there's details to that, it's, but basically it is the FinCEN endeavoring to become a central repository of even more sensitive data relating to financial transactions and it's just ironic that it's coming at the same time that you have these solar winds disclosures. On the enterprise level, I am fascinated by the potential for greater collaboration, not competition, between potentially competitive entities, endeavoring to share data sources to make their automated processes, to make their data processing more efficient and create better outcomes. This can create, like I said before, new businesses that never could even exist before. It'll probably first find its way in some of the larger financial enterprises in terms of trading algorithms, but it also has profound implications and a lot of organizations are focusing on it with regards to healthcare, which is where we really would like to see it grow. Probably a little too late for COVID, but there are some other areas that it is having already an impact and uh, certainly something we want to and will be getting more information on with the guests that we have on the show. And then the other thing that becomes interesting about data science is as we have more and more automated algorithms making determinations as to the data is being compiled in a certain way, the data is telling a certain story, but how do we know that the processes that we're relying on, that the compilations that we're relying on are actually working. And so auditability is a very big component of understanding machine learning and, and the implications for machine learning. So this goes to code auditability. This even touches on things like API in a more traditional security sense. If you think about application programming interfaces, there could be a, a number of vulnerabilities in the very means that we use to access applications. And I don't think that this is something that's been fully explored. Certainly there are organizations that are targeting it, whether it's understood writ large, another matter altogether. And another component of auditability that is also really intriguing and Nick Carter over at Castle Island Ventures has continued to beat the drum for is proof of reserves for custodians of digital assets, for stable coins themselves that have reserves in digital assets, or really just about any financial institution. There should be a mechanism for validating that the reserves that they claim to have in fact exist. And there are ways to do it. And then last in this field is metadata. Now I'm not going to go on and on about metadata on this podcast. But in the future, 
Metadata used to be something that basically it was like in a financial contract, you'd say it's anonymized and aggregated and that's metadata or, or that's data on data and I don't need to protect that. But in fact, in the age of advanced machine learning algorithms, advanced data science, the metadata on data is actually more valuable in many cases than the data underlying data itself. Now, this is a bit of a mind bender and we'll unpack it in future episodes, but metadata is something that I think certainly a lot of lawyers and risk managers have yet to fully grapple with. Those are some of the critical stories in that area with regards to digital asset regulation. Obviously, I'm not gonna be able to touch everything, but you see this constant back and forth play between AML, which basically needs more information or demands more information as to who originated the transaction and the need for privacy. How many times, I can think of multiple times in the last couple of years where I've been forced to give very personal information, passport information, faxing it all related to AML, putting all my personal information out there for the purposes of AML. And yet at the same time, Who's protecting this? And that's something that is yet to be fully grappled with. We're going to be looking at custody rules. The custody rules in the U.S. for securities and commodities is based obviously not on digital asset. And it is one of the areas where there are the biggest gaping holes. But the SEC and the CFTC recognize it. They're endeavoring to accommodate it. They're endeavoring to move in the right direction slowly. But it is an area where you do see the regulators endeavoring to get it right. DeFi is a whole new area for some, even just saying DeFi may be confusing, but decentralized finance, or basically where you don't have an intermediary. It's like peer to peer. And that whole system basically conflicts with what the FATF and AML regulations are endeavoring to do, which is to ensure that certain information is being collected and that it can be regulated, it can be auditable, all that stuff. None of that exists. It's a permissionless system. So how DeFi comes out of that, whether they go to a semi-permission system, how they overlay the travel rule, which requires you to get information on a counterparty, all that's evolving. And again, this may be a lot for some listeners. When we talk about the lack of regulatory certainty in the U.S., I think we're going to learn more about security tokens, which are registered. We're going to see more actions against unregistered token holders. And there's going to be a continuing debate about where you have a token and developers and no one's really holding the bag. No one's, there's no real person to be liable for except the developers. And this whole debate about should the developers be liable? It's silly to, to, to some extent, but it's basically people are struggling with, Hey, when we create something and throw it in the wild, almost like open source, Who's liable for it? I, I think that's something we'll be exploring in future podcasts. And then we're also going to be exploring how the U.S. government is reacting to it and like extending their reach into areas that may be slightly beyond what they've done in the past. It's dizzying. There's a lot going on. It's a bit of a rabbit hole when you start to get into digital assets. But there are definite some areas, custody, money laundering, security regulation. These are all themes. These are regulatory themes that we're all struggling with. And then, of course, late this year, we saw actions against BitMEX, criminal actions, and X. XRP, where the SEC named individuals in their complaints. But both of these cases are probably going to have bigger ripple effects than warranted because in many of these cases, these were known like XRP. Basically, they have a whole organization. They're basically an unregistered security offering. So people say, oh my God, how can you do this XRP? But what do you expect the SEC to do? And when you snub the regulators and you do it so openly, what do you expect? But in all this debate, sometimes we lose something important as well. 
in that even though AML and is important in rooting out criminal elements, the minute you lose the privacy components in these transactions, you start to have an impact on another segment of the global population, which may be under totalitarian regimes, where they may need that privacy, where that privacy is a way of protecting themselves and their assets against seizure that we would ourselves view as unlawful in the U.S., the vagaries of a totalitarian regime. These are real issues for a lot of these developing countries, emerging economies. And the trade-offs that we make in the more developed countries will actually have an impact on some of these developing countries. And you might end up in a world where you have two types of coins, one which is privacy, but will never enter into the stream of EU, Europe, China, the developed countries. A couple of additional trends we're going to be following is the unbundling of crypto exchanges, as well as security tokens. And then the last thing I want to touch on in this podcast is central banks. Now, this is a huge topic in and of itself. It definitely touches the encrypted economy. But let's face it, the central banks are printing money like crazy. And when you think about Bitcoin and why it's going up in value, it's because there is no restraint by the central banks. It's unclear where the printing ends. With Bitcoin, there is a supply and there's only so much. There's a scarcity value. Now, could something else be substituted for it? That remains to be seen. It probably will over time. But let's face it, it might be a better bet than a lot of the currencies that we're currently seeing. And amidst all this, there is this rise of modern monetary theory, which is a field of economics. You see Rohan Gray and Stephanie Kelton's book, The Deficit Myth, that believe that there's actually no limit to how much currency that the U.S. can print and we'll basically just deal with the inflationary consequences later through taxation. And this is gaining sway. Why? Because, first of all, we're already printing like crazy. But this theory says we shouldn't even care. It doesn't matter. We can print indefinitely. Now, what that actually means in terms of dollar dominance isn't really addressed by them. What that actually means in the inflationary pressures isn't exactly addressed by them. The fact is it, it acts as both a tax on our savings in terms of the inflationary pressures, and it acts as a tax on income in what they'll have to do later. Now, some might say, well, what else are we going to do? And there is some power to that argument. But yet, in saying that, the moral hazard is that there really is no end. Bitcoin has greater built-in controls than central banks. And now central bank virtual currencies are potentially positioning themselves to challenge dollar dominance. And also, like in the case of China, potentially increase government control over finances, which actually appeals to modern monetary theorists. But on the flip side, these decentral bank virtual currencies can facilitate trade. What I think was really intriguing is even the IMF is effectively calling for a universal digital currency. I'll say it again. The IMF is calling for a universal digital currency. What are the implications for dollar dominance? Think about a world where the dollar isn't dominant. Matt Walsh and I talked about this at the end of our last podcast. Look at what happened to the British pound sterling in World War II. That wasn't uh, exactly comfortable. That could have profound implications for us. So certainly this is uh, the central bank piece of it. It's, it's certainly something we could talk about exclusively on the show, but it's not the focus of the encrypted economy, but yet very important. So those are the areas. And of course, there's the X factor, which is yet to be written, but it could be something like supply chain logistics, but basically looking for that rubber meeting the road for the encrypted economy. So I hope you enjoyed this, this summary episode. I hope you'll be listening to my show. Certainly, if you like the show, share it with your friends, get them to listen, subscribe, rate it, engage with me, 
all that good stuff. Uh, let me know what you want to hear more of. I'm here. So thanks so much. Thanks for being a listener in 2021 or in 2020. I'm getting ahead of myself and I hope to have you a listener in 2021.